Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. Hello, I want to welcome everyone participating in today's webinar, exploring the OMB 2023 updates and proposed guidance. My name is Kiara Ramos and I'm an audit senior here at GRF. Today, we are joined by Trisha Catabini, an audit partner, and Bill Dobbing, an audit supervisor here at GRF. We are GRF CPAs and advisors based out of Bethesda, Maryland, serving clients in the DMV as well as nationally and internationally. Our firm serves a wide range of clients covering not-for-profit, for-profit, publicly traded companies, schools, government contractors, and others. However, our particular niche is within the NFP INGO space. We've been in operation for several decades and recently celebrated our 40-year anniversary in 2021. With that, I'll turn things over to Tricia to discuss today's agenda. Thank you, Kira. Uh, just a couple of quick things, too, that I wanted to mention about our firm. Um, obviously, we do serve the different sectors that Kira had just mentioned. Uh, we do have the traditional tax and audit practice, as well as our outsourced accounting and advisory services. We also have a team that specializes in enterprise risk management, in internal audit, and in cybersecurity, as well as another team that is specialized in accounting technology solutions. So if there's any need that you all may have, please feel free to reach out to us after today's presentation. With that, we'll talk about today's topics. Um, we are exploring the new updates that OMB had put out for the compliance supplement for fiscal years that ended June 30, 2023 and beyond until the next year. Uh, we wanted to kind of provide first and foremost an overview of single audits, simply because a lot of our clients that we've been working with and dealing with in today's age has really found a new way of funding with the single audits and some of the COVID and pandemic funding that has been coming out. So we thought it prudent to kind of give an overview first and foremost of what a single audit is, what a federal award may be comprised of, and then also what your responsibilities are. Then after that, we'll go into the updates for the 2023 compliance supplement and how it can impact your audits. And then we'll talk about some of the proposed changes that OMB has just put out for us in terms of changes that are upcoming and proposed for uniform guidance. Polling question number one, is your organization subject to a single audit? A, yes, B, no, C, unsure. Thank you, Kira. So we've got most of the results in here. Uh, we do have over half of you that do have subjectivity for single audits and about a third of you that are not subject to single audits. So, you know, when you come to this presentation today, if you are in an arena where you may become subject to a single audit in the future, I think this is a great starting place. So first and foremost, let's talk about those single audits. 
Um, I like to always just kind of glean and say that that word single is a little bit misleading simply because single audit's actually made up of multiple different audit objectives. And so with that, let's talk a little bit about the Single Audit Act. The Single Audit Act Amendments of 1996, which is what we commonly refer to as the Single Audit Act, was really enacted to make sure that things were streamlined. It was helping to improve the effectiveness of audits of federal awards that have been expended by states, local governments, and not-for-profit entities that we refer to most commonly as the non-federal entities, as well as to help to reduce some of that audit burden. The Single Audit Act itself does give um, the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, what we commonly refer to as OMB, the authority to be able to develop those government-wide regulations and the policies and how to perform audits so they comply with what we call uniform guidance. And so with that, the most common, uh, the most recent regulation that's been issued requires all non-federal entities that expend more than $750,000 in federal awards in any given fiscal year or period required to get a single audit. I do wanna make note that those federal funds that are included within your schedule of expenditures of federal awards will be comprised of not only awards that are sourced directly from federal uh, agencies, but also from pass-through entities. So making sure that we have that documentation that's written, if there's any kind of a question in where the source of a fund may be or an award may be, please reach out to those pass-through entities because they are required to document that for you if it is federally sourced or not. So when talking about federal awards, there's always some questions over it and determining what's the difference between a contract, what's the difference between a subrecipient, what's the difference between a federal contract, what's the difference between a federal award. All federal awards are what will be included on your schedule of expenditures of federal awards and will ultimately be potentially subject to that single audit and also be required to comply with uniform guidance. So again, I already mentioned to you that it does comprise of direct federal funding as well as anything that comes from a pass-through entity, but it does uh, include different things that could be termed as grants, it could be termed a contract, it could be termed cooperative agreement. It also includes things like loans and loans guarantees, any type of property that has been donated, um, such as vaccines, uh, we hear like vehicles that are being donated as well, you have other things such as interest subsidies, insurance, direct appropriations, and endowments that may also be there. And the other big part is also an indirect state or local government transfer of federal funds. So because we do work in the DMV area and we work with a lot of not-for-profits that are in that arena, um, we do see a lot of funding that is coming from local counties, from our different states, uh, from the DC, from the district as well. So those would all be subject and potentially could be federally sourced. So make sure you're really reading your documentation to ensure you're following appropriately. Just as a note, um, there are, excuse me, uh, contracts that are determined to be under federal funds that are, excuse me, from the federal government that may not actually fall under uniform guidance. And those really are for items that are used to purchase goods or services that are for the direct user. So for instance, if you're a non-federal entity or a not-for-profit, as we most likely are talking to today, that happens to have a contract where you are purchasing something for your own use, that would actually not be subject to uniform guidance. Now, if you are a not-for-profit that is getting an award that would be used to purchase goods or services for the public benefit, such as food commodities for those that are experiencing food insecurities, then those would be subject to uniform guidance and would be considered a federal award. So now that we know what a federal award is, what is the definition of a federal program? 
Um, so this is what will be included via subtotals on your schedule of expenditures of federal awards. Federal programs can be made up of several awards and are typically defined as all awards which have the same assistance listing number. Or commonly, uh, for any award in which you do not have an identified assistance listing number, all you need to do is look at the agency from which the award is federally sourced and awards that are coming from the same agency and are from the same purpose are typically also considered to a federal program as well. Um, you can also have a cluster of programs. So what is that? A cluster of programs is a grouping of closely related programs that share common compliance requirements. Uh, clusters are treated as one program for the auditor's major program determination and testing clusters can include R&D programs, student financial assistance, and other clusters that are defined in the OMB compliance supplement. So now that we know what our federal program is, and we can go to the next slide to discuss the federal expenditures under those federal awards and programs, and when we're gonna typically recognize that expenditure and report it on the CFA. So here we have some common examples that we run into as auditors that we see uh, under the federal awards for the non-federal entities. Um, those can include grants, cost reimbursement contracts, cooperative agreements. When you have that sort of federal award, the expenditure is gonna be expended when it occurs and reported on the CFA. Amounts dispersed to subrecipients is another common award that we see, those are going to be expended when the disbursement is made to the subrecipient. Uh, another one, loan and loan guarantees. You're going to report the expenditure when the loan proceeds are actually used by the non-federal entity. We'll go to the next slide with a few more examples. We have awards for food commodities. If you had this type of federal award, it will be expended when the food commodity commodities are distributed or consumed. Some other examples are insurance, endowments, and program income. From there, we'll go on to discuss, let's uh, touch on what is a financial audit versus a single audit. So a financial statement audit is generally not going to be subject to uniform guidance requirements because the entity has received less than $750,000 in uh, federal funding. If you're over that threshold, then you're going to require to have a single audit. So the, the main difference is single audits cover the entire organization's financial operations and are substantially more detailed than a regular independent audit. A single audit requires higher levels of testing by the independent auditor to establish that financial statements are presented fairly and accurately they're in accordance with federal cost principles. The organization also has adequate internal control structure, which we'll cover in a little bit more detail later on, uh, and that the organization is in compliance with special government regulations and laws that apply to the specific federal funding stream. Some other differences that we'll see here is the single audit also must be completed and submitted to in a machine readable format 
to the Federal Audit Clearinghouse within 30 days after receiving the auditor's report or nine months after the end of the nonprofit's fiscal year, whichever comes earlier. We'll discuss some specific updates to this process and what's changing uh, upcoming uh, at a later slide, but just wanted to point that out. The single audit also must be submitted for any past or entities if applicable. Also, copies of the audit report must be available, must be made available to the public, which can be accomplished by posting a link to the report from the nonprofit's website. Next, I'll let Trisha take it from here. Thanks, Bill. Uh, and so obviously, as a part of the financial statement audit, I think most of you would probably likely be aware of what your responsibilities under that would be. Uh, if we talk and we look at the auditor's report, it does outline what management's responsibilities are under the financial statement audit. And that is to ensure that those financial statements are fairly presented in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Well, what happens when you have a single audit? What additional requirements do you have? Um, so when we also look back to a financial statement audit, management also is responsible for internal controls. You are required to make sure that they're designed appropriately, they're implemented appropriately, and that they're also maintained throughout the entire fiscal year. Uh, so one of the things that I'll always like to talk about when it comes to a single audit is that there's a greater emphasis on internal controls when it comes to the single audit from an auditor's perspective. We are required to ensure that internal controls are adequate and appropriate, both at the financial statement reporting level, also in terms of compliance, so making sure that we have those in place. So let's talk about some of your auditee responsibilities. First and foremost, I have on here is that there has to be an understanding of these types of requirements and responsibilities before you even sign your name on the dotted line for, the, for a federal award. And I say this and I emphasize it so much simply because I have a lot of organizations who obtain federal funding and they're not aware of all the different types of compliance requirements to which they're held. And so with that, then they might hit the threshold. We come in, we perform a single audit, and then we have multiple findings, which obviously nobody wants a finding when it comes to their audit process, right? So making sure that you really understand what your compliance requirements are, making sure that you have an understanding of uniform guidance before you even receive this funding is of utmost importance. So when we talk about the standards for financial management, uh, there is a requirement, obviously, to make sure you're complying with all requirements of the award. Uh, so please make sure that you are working with your grants managers and you are uh, from a financial perspective also with the understanding of what requirements there may be. This is where there's a lot of collaborate, collaboration that needs to occur across multiple departments. It's not just a one person has it all. So when we look at the different compliance requirements, again, making sure that there are performance measurements that are required, because obviously you have to show that you are fulfilling what the purpose of that award is. When it comes to your financial management system then, you also have to make sure you're able to separately identify those federal awards. You're also able to have complete and accurate financial results within your uh, actual audit process, making sure that you have support for your federal drawdowns. Now, that federal support for drawdowns is going to include the documentation, obviously, for your expenditures that you're putting into those federal drawdown requests. Also, you may be doing reconciliations for the grants based on the, the start of the grant period, how much that total award is for, and you'll be going and taking a look at what you've expended thus far. So you're doing kind of like a reconciliation process, and you're making sure that you're not overdrawing or underdrawing that reimbursement request, making sure that you have that documentation 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit about approvals, et cetera, but effective control and accountability is really big here. Again, I'm going to say there's an emphasis on internal controls when it comes to the single audit process. Uh, and then written procedures. I have this underlined and bolded for a, a good reason. When it comes to the single audit, you do have to make sure that you have formalized written policies and procedures. And so there are a lot of organizations out there who don't even have their their normal financial policies and procedures written out. So if you do not have those currently and you are in a place where you are receiving federal funding, please make sure you formalize those as quickly as possible. So standard operating procedures are a great place to start. This would talk about the different policies that you have in place, uh, various thresholds, et cetera, for things that we'll talk about here in just a second, as well as those specific procedures over who is doing what and what the approval process is for your controls, right? And so again, making sure that we're not only talking about the financial reporting controls, but we're also talking about the controls related to your compliance requirements. So again, these written procedures are required and recommended for all compliance areas. Uh, they are required for these items here. And those subsections relate to the 2 CFR 200, which is the Uniform Guidance Regulation and Code. So when you see subsection 200.305, if you go to that subsection within the Uniform Guidance, um, that is what that little reference is referring to. So again, you are required to have those written procedures for the implementation surrounding your reimbursement request surrounding procurement, which also includes conflict of interest. At a minimum, we do require, uh, or do we do, excuse me, recommend to all of our clients that at least senior management and those that are involved in federal fund uh, resources, vendor selection and application, et cetera, have assigned conflict of interest every single year. Allowability of cost, making sure that you truly understand what is allowable within that grant agreement. Compensation. We're talking about timesheets, authorized pay for people. Again, conflicts of interest would also fall into this bucket, what kind of benefits are gonna be provided, and then travel costs. So again, the government is very, very much um, in a place where they like to see that there's a cost analysis being performed, that they are getting the best bang for their buck, so to speak. So really making sure that you are having those documents and written out in a way that is giving them um, that comfort over the control process. So when we talk about the internal controls as well, uniform guidance goes back to COSO, right? So the organization, the non-federal entity must establish and maintain effective internal control over the federal award, making sure that you have reasonable assurance that you are managing it appropriately and that you are in compliance with all of those regulations and terms and conditions of that specific award. There is a should here that it should be consistent with COSO as well as with the green book. And so I do have the green book kind of control environment here. Um, they're little box. So looking at different activities within the control environment, within your risk assessment, how are you assessing risk? Within your control activities, what are you doing and performing? How are you taking care of your information and your communication? And then what activities do you perform to make sure that you're monitoring for compliance uh, and ensuring that everything is, is running as smoothly as it should? I do have a nice little blurb here that part six of the compliance supplement is actually a very useful tool for identifying illustrative controls. So when we look at part six and why it could be of interest to you all as auditees, and since you know the compliance supplement is really for auditors, uh, really it's of interest to you as auditees simply because there it's a nice summary of the requirements of internal controls under uniform guidance. And so with that, there's a nice little discussion um, on the important internal control concepts that are within uniform guidance 
And there's also appendices that give you illustrative entity-wide controls, as well as il illustrative specific controls over the different compliance requirements. And so with that, when I have organizations who are just starting out to get federal funding, I will actually point them to part six because here's what you could be doing or you should be doing. What do you already do? Let's identify it. It's also a really great place to start writing out your policies and your procedures if you don't have those in place. So again, your responsibilities over the cost principles. Uh, when we look at an organization's financial statement audit process, we're obviously looking at internal controls, but we aren't necessarily giving an, uh, an opinion over those internal controls and if they're operating effectively. However, um, as a part of that audit process, we do take a look at them and understand them. And if we see any gaps that we may note, we'll give either material weakness or a significant deficiency, depending on where it may fall. If you don't have any of those within your financial statement audit, more likely than not, you do have sound internal control or accounting policies and procedures already in place. And so with that, the cost principles under uniform guidance basically stipulates that you should have no significant changes to what you already have in place when it comes to the cost principles for federal awards. One thing to note when it comes to the actual cost of a federal award is that it is the sum of anything that is directly related to that award and allowable, as well as any allocable indirect costs. The applicable credits and those applicable credits would come into a place where, for instance, you have a provisional rate um, and you are doing a true up and find that maybe you owe the government a couple hundred bucks back and you can apply that to your next award. And so those indirects um, can come into a place where you either have, again, I mentioned a provisional rate that is to be used during the course of your award, which then needs to be trued up at the close of the award. You may have a fixed rate that would just be applied and agreed upon, or um, you could have no rate. So if you don't have a negotiated rate, there is the de minimis rule. The de minimis uh, indirect rate is currently set at 10%. Um, I have a lot of organizations, I have a note here that says, don't leave money on the table. I have a lot of organizations that I've worked with the past couple of months that didn't actually apply any de minimis rate to their total award cost. And so if you are in a place where you don't have a negotiated indirect cost rate, then I would encourage you to take advantage of that de minimis, de minimis rate and apply it to your total award. Just some other responsibilities to quickly go through. Um, number one, making sure that you actually have put in place the, the ability to get a single audit performed by your auditor. Uh, again, the auditor selection process will follow the procurement rules under the single audit uniform guidance. Um, and so making sure that you're going through that bid process, uh, making sure that it's performed appropriately. Uh, you do need to make sure that you are selecting an audit firm that has this arena for expertise. Um, so you wanna make sure that the audit is quality and that you are being provided the proper service. The other thing that the auditee is responsible is making sure that the audit is submitted timely. As Bill has already mentioned, a single audit does have the requirement at the conclusion to have a data collection form filed no later than nine months after the organization's fiscal year end or within 30 days of the release of the report. You're also required to make sure that you have your financial statements prepared and that your schedule of expenditures of federal awards are also prepared appropriately. There are some nuances that go into that schedule of expenditures of federal awards or a CIFA. As Bill already mentioned, you also are responsible for ensuring you know what are federal awards. 
you also know what your federal programs are. And one of the other caveats too, is that in light of the pandemic, knowing which funding is coming from that COVID relief funding and being able to appropriately identify that with on, within your CEPA. You're also ensuring, uh, you're also, excuse me, responsible for ensuring that you're following up with any findings that are coming out of the course of the audit process. So if there are any findings that are either on the financial side or there are findings that are on the single audit side when it comes to the major programs that were selected for testing, you would be required to write what is uh, considered to be a corrective action plan. And that corrective action plan really outlines what you will be doing to make sure that that finding is hopefully remediated by the time the next audit process comes around. If you did have any prior audit findings within a single audit from a, a previous year, from the previous year, then you would also have to prepare a summary schedule of those prior audit findings and what the status is. You would also have to make sure that you understand what all the elements are of a data collection form. We didn't really talk about what the data collection form is, but it's simply just a place where uh, the information that is pulled and from the single audit is put into a readable format, as Bill mentioned, but it's things like what was the CIFA? What programs were there? How much money was there? What was selected as the major program for testing? Um, any footnotes that were included with the CIFA? Were there any findings and in what compliance areas? Was it a material weakness or was it a significant deficiency? So that's really what the data collection form is. It's available on the FAC, the Federal Audit Clearinghouse's website. So it is publicly available. Anybody can go out there and can find it. Again, as mentioned, making sure that you're complying with those federal statutes and the regulations and anything that's included in terms and conditions within the federal award, monitoring the compliance with those items as follow-up, taking prompt action when non-compliance is identified. So if you do have something that has come to your attention during your fiscal year, don't wait until the audit process uh, to make note of it and start a recommended action plan to correct it, correct it immediately. We also work with a lot of organizations, for instance, that are um, federally qualified healthcare centers or those that are um, working with people who are facing food insecurities. And with that, there's a lot of data intake for people to make sure that they're eligible for the services that they are being provided. Um, and so the organizations are also responsible for ensuring that they are protecting those people's personal information and identity. We have come to our second polling question. Are you aware of all the compliance requirements under federally sourced awards or programs? A, yes, B, no, C, unsure. Thank you, Kiara. Okay, so the results about half of you um, are aware of the compliance requirements, which is great, but a third of you are not, which we're gonna go over that today, so no fears. Um, so we'll be talking about that. There was a question in the chat that I'd like to address now. Um, is there a time frame or a deadline for submitting your corrective action plan? That's actually a part of the audit process. Um, so that corrective action plan is included with the uh, single audit report. It would be presented to your auditors um, and it would be submitted when you actually go to file your data collection form because that fully readable uh, PDF of your report would also be submitted as a part of that process. So it would be at the conclusion of your audit.
Okay, so now we're going to move into the compliance supplement uh, and talking a little bit about some of the updates that we've got going on for 2023. My slides would move. Um, so the compliance supplement, just as a backdrop, uh, is issued every single year. Um, it is a place for us as auditors to be able to follow to make sure that we're determining the compliance requirements that would have a direct and material effect on any programs that are included uh, within the single audit or major programs that we may have selected as a part of our testing process. Um, so it does go over the different objectives for the program. It's a nice summary for us. It's also a great summary for you all as auditees. Uh, any procedures and requirements that we have to perform would be included in there. And it also provides our audit objectives and any suggested audit procedures for making sure that you as an auditee are in compliance under the uniform guidance. And this is really important. Um, I like to just make note, again, the compliance supplement is not only our friend as auditors, but it is also your friend as auditees, because this may give you a really good opportunity to kind of look at and determine what we might be looking at as a part of the audit process. Um, so for the current year, this compliance supplement for 2023 was released in May. It is effective for any fiscal year that began after June 30, 2022. So just to be clear, it is for fiscal years ending June 30 of 2023 or beyond. It must be used by us during those audit processes. We cannot use a prior co compliance supplement. So therefore, it does supersede the 2022 compliance supplement. So in the next couple of sections, we're going to cover some key changes. Um, you know, a, a lot of this information that we're going to be talking about uh, is, again, kind of geared towards auditors, but we want to come to it in a place where we want to be helpful for you all as auditees. Just to kind of talk about some of the single audit processes and what we've seen recently with the pandemic, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of slides, is really there's been a significant influx of single audits over the past several years. We went from just 37,000 in 2019 to over 44,000 in 2021. And it has just been steadily going up uh, simply because of the Infrastructure and Jobs Act being out there, as well as the funding from COVID that has now hit. So this next picture uh, is really just a place for you to kind of see the structure of the compliance supplement. Part one is just about the compliance supplement and it's applicability overall. Uh, part two talks about the matrix of compliance requirements for any programs that are specifically listed within the compliance supplement. Um, and we'll look at that matrix here on the next slide. Part three uh, are any compliance requirements that fall within those programs. Part four talks about any agency program requirements um, if they have sp specific ones like HHS. Part five talks about if there are clusters that have been identified and what they are. Part six, again, as we previously talked about, is really about internal controls and gives you that great appendency for illustrative controls. And then part seven is a guide if your program is not specifically listed um, on the matrix and listed out by its assistance living listing number, then part seven is a guide for what to do if, we, um, if it's not included in the compliance supplement. The last section here, the different appendices that are there, is a really great place for you all as auditees because if you ever have a question about a specific program, it does have some contacts with their email addresses, addresses in there as well. So if you do have something specific and you're trying to find out if it applies to you, you can email that person and get a response back. 
So prior to 2019, we as auditors were actually required to evaluate all 12 compliance requirements for every major program uh, based on uh, the major program threshold for the individual auditee. Since 2019, though, different agencies were required to only select six of these compliance requirements, which are identified by the Ys at the bottom of this compliance matrix that you see on the screen. Again, this is just an example of one specific program. This is not applicable to every program that may be out there, so I do want to be clear about that. Um, but these are the different compliance requirements that you would have uh, be held to, excuse me, within your federal awards potentially. So again, those agencies are required to select now six. It can change every single year. So just because Department of Treasury selected this six, for instance, this year, next year they could select something completely different. So it is very prudent for we as auditors, but also you as auditees to look at and see what com compliance requirements um, will be looked at as a part of the single audit process. So again, I encourage you all to take a look at the compliance supplement. It's going to give you a great place to start with of what we might be looking at as a part of the single audit process. Again, just going over these different requirements, they may not be applicable to every single program that you may have or award that you may have, um, but activity is allowable and then allowable costs. So again, activities allowable are things that, um, is that activity actually allowed to be done under the, the federal award? And then on top of it are the costs that are being charged to the federal award allowable as well. Cash management goes into that reimbursement process, making sure that you are being prudent with the funding that you have received. If your award is subject to eligibility criteria and rules for um, the funding that you have, for instance, if you're required to um, calculate if somebody who is facing food insecurity can obtain um, stamps, for instance, as an example, then you would have to uh, look at that eligibility criteria. Any equipment and real property management, which is currently set at a $5,000 threshold for purchase, um, would have to be managed appropriately. So this doesn't just talk specifically about equipment and property that is purchased during the current year, but it's actually about all equipment and property that's been purchased at any point in time with those federal funds, even if it happened in a prior fiscal year. Matching, level of effort, earmarking, period of performance, making sure that you understand that those costs can only be within that period of performance within the award. Procurement and suspension and department, um, that's a big one. Bill's actually going to talk a little bit more in detail about that one here coming forward. Program income, we don't see too much of that um, here anymore, but it does still apply. Uh, we do still see some programs generating some income. Uh, reporting requirements, both financial and performance or pr uh, progress awards, subrecipient monitoring, risk assessment. Do not forget that you have to file a FAFATA. Um, if you have a subrecipient award that you've given for more than $25,000. And as I mentioned, you also are required to specifically identify the source of the funds, the assistance listing number, um, if it is federally sourced. The other thing here, and special tests and provisions, this is again where I would encourage you to take a look to your program if it is specifically identified in the compliance supplement to see what those special tests and provisions would be. So let's talk a little bit about higher risk programs. Uh, each year within the compliance supplement, um, there are programs that are identified as higher risk uh, by the federal agencies. And so each year those are reevaluated. Um, this year there happened to be a few that kind of fell off as being deemed higher risk. 
Um, so you'll see these listed here. I'm not really gonna spend too much time on them, but it's here as a resource for you. Uh, however, moving into 2023, programs that have been identified as higher risk, these are the items that you see here on your screen. You can actually see a lot of the funding is surrounding still COVID. Um, so we're looking at a lot of COVID funding, 100% COVID funding. Um, those are the items that are deemed higher risk. These are only identified and communicated within the compliance supplement. There's nowhere else that you're going to find this information. Um, and so we as auditors, we have to look at um, the higher risk programs in determining for our risk assessment process. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we are going to select it for testing as a major program potentially, but we are required to look at it and understand what the, um, be aware of the programs that kind of fall under this. So again, these are all the different items. We're gonna discuss some updates for uh, a couple of them specifically and kind of what has changed in terms of them uh, as we move forward. There's been a significant increase in, in audits uh, by the federal agencies of recipients that have received pandemic funding. A lot of uh, recipients of federal funding have been getting letters from their federal agencies that say they're gonna come in and audit their pandemic funding. Um, you know, because of that process, depending on what they find, it could lead to other questions that go into our single audit. The federal agency may then reach out to us and say, hey, this has been identified as a higher risk. There's been some non-compliance. We need you to look at it. Um, they may, we may have to also issue findings because of what they have found as well. So as a part of the audit process, we always ask if there have been any other audits uh, from the federal agencies or cognizant or oversight agencies uh, when we come in to do a single audit. The other thing is that federal agencies may reach out to us as federal auditor, or excuse me, as auditors with single audits um, to ask us for some information on what we've done as a part of our process. And that could come post. So uh, we've actually gotten several requests already uh, for things that have happened last year. So they do have the ability to access um, our audit documentation as a part of that process. And so we are required to comply with that as well. Um, so making sure that you understand that there is the potential for not only a single audit being performed, but you also have the potential for an agency audit to be performed. So again, with this pandemic funding, just some quick reminders here, uh, making sure that you do identify what is uh, COVID-19 funding that is required to be specifically identified on your CEPA with the prefix COVID-19. So it should be at the very forefront. The data collection form, <clears throat> same thing also applies there. So while a lot of the pandemic funding has obviously starting to wind down, the public health emergency was declared as null and void anymore. It no longer exists back in May of 2023. So a lot of that funding has gone down. A lot of the waivers have also gone away. Just making sure that you're very mindful of um, some of those changes. A lot of the information that came out in prior years um, because there was just so much when it came to COVID-19 federal funding, uh, specifically surrounding provider relief funding. Um, a lot of that came out and was put into the compliance supplement. That may or may not be the case this year, so we just need to make sure both auditee and auditors um, that we are aware of what those impacts may be for the testing for single audits. So this is a fun one. Um, 
I can't recall how it was pronounced, but uh, by our trainer last year, I, or last couple of weeks ago, I think she said it was SLURF, um, but the Coronavirus State and Local Fiscal Recovery Funds. Uh, these, this particular program had some key updates in these different compliance areas. Again, uh, I don't wanna go into too much detail here, um, but there is some specific things that you can look at within the compliance supplement if you happen to have these fundings. The next funding, in case is the provider relief funding. And we do have several clients who have gotten this. So I do want to touch on it a little bit as it is also very unique in the reporting requirements. Um, so there are specific periods to which those funds apply when the payments were received versus what the period of availability was. And the provider relief funding, if you're not aware of it, really came from some healthcare um, organizations, they were able to um, get some funding. In fact, I believe even one of our clients, HHS just happened to submit money into their bank account without their knowledge. And they were wondering what it was. They actually didn't even get notification of it. Um, and they had to find and dig and investigate to even determine what it was, but it's for, for lost revenues. Um, so obviously when the pandemic hit, a lot of providers for medical care, dental care, et cetera, uh, we're forced to shut down and lost a lot of money because of it. Um, and so as a part of that process, there is some different reporting requirements that fall under the PRF funding. So you'll see on their screen here, this is directly out of the 2023 compliance supplement, um, when things should be reported on your CIFA versus when they may be reported within your statement of activities. So you may have received funding last year, for instance, that will be reported on your CIFA this year, which means you're gonna have a reconciliation within your schedule of expenditures of federal awards to be able to reconcile back to what you have recorded as revenue in the current year. We have come to our third polling question. Are you aware of the proposed changes by the OMB on uniform guidance? A, yes, B, no, C, unsure. Thanks, Kara. Looks like we've got everybody's answer in for this point in time. And over half of you aren't aware of the proposed changes. So I'm so glad you're here today. We're going to touch on that here at the very end. There's actually some really good things that are coming out that have been proposed that we are going to cross our fingers and toes get passed. Um, but with that, you know, Bill's going to talk about some things that we see commonly within our single audits in terms of findings. And so uh, we would just want to bring these up because if, again, you're in a place where you're preparing for your single, first single audit, these are just some of the things that we tend to issue most often than not. Uh, and we would love for you to be well prepared. Thanks, Trisha. Yes, as uh, Trisha mentioned, these are uh, some, we're going to discuss three common deficiencies that we normally run across uh, in performing a single audit and timesheets is one of those. Uh, so if a salary expense we see is funded by a federal award, then there is gonna be certain criteria criteria that the auditee needs to meet in order to support those costs. And your auditors are going to request evidence of that. So as we mentioned earlier, there is a requirement for there to be written procedures over compensation. And those written procedures should really include how we assess and allocate time among federal wards, which can include non-federal wards as well, uh, in order to support the amount that is being charged to the federal agency. And 
those timesheets need to be supported by a system of internal control, which provides assurance that the charges are accurate, allowable, and properly allocated. The timesheets are incorporated into the official records of the non-federal entity. And Bill, can I stop you there really quickly? Because yeah. um, one of the things that we've recently come across when it comes to this and why we want to put this in here as about official words or records. Now, again, this wording on your screen is directly from uniform guidance in terms of what is being required. Uh, let's talk about switching payroll providers really quickly. And so when we, we've had several clients who have switched payroll providers mid-year, and so when we're looking and we're coming in to do the audit, they no longer have access to those timesheets because they're held electronically. And so when we talk about having information that's included in your official record, if you are going to be switching payroll providers, one of my big encouragements would be to make sure you have copies of all of your timesheets and records um, within you, download it and save somewhere. Because I can tell you from experience this past year that it has been extremely difficult for some of my clients to obtain that information after they've switched off and no longer are under contract. Absolutely. Good point, Trisha. Thanks for bringing that up. And so the next slide we can skip to now is just going to basically touch on uh, some of the like I was mentioning before, written policies and procedures. So you are required to have the, the, the timesheets that are submitted. They need to comply with the established accounting policies and procedures of the non-federal entity receiving the funding. And those timesheets need to accurately reflect the distribution of the employee salary, which is not to exceed 100% of the compensation. And that is very important because your auditors are going to request personnel file documentation to support that amount that's getting charged to the federal award. And the allocation on the timesheets of that compensation is what your auditor is going to be looking for. Budget estimates uh, are not alone going to qualify support for charges to federal awards. Next, we'll skip to... Go ahead. Well, and, and, and one of the other things I just really want to emphasize, too, is that if you are in a place where you're keeping things in Excel in terms of your timesheets, making sure that you have a documented signature and approval process uh, that has to be done. Um, we also emphasize that the timesheet approval must occur before the date of payroll being paid. Uh, that is when the control has to take place. If there was anything in terms of non-compliance, you would have to identify that prior to that payment and that charge being allocated to the federal award. The other thing is making sure you have the appropriate people looking at the timesheets. So if you have um, the CEO looking at everybody's timesheets in an organization that's 40 people, the CEO is not gonna know exactly what everybody's doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So making sure you have the appropriate hierarchy as well. And then the other thing that I just wanted to mention is, is also looking at not only timesheets, but also payroll registers. I know that's not in here, um, but payroll registers would also ensure that that allocation of time looks appropriate based on what you've seen in the timesheets as well. Perfect. I think we covered the approval piece, so we can go on to procurement next. Another area that we see with our clients uh, that Basically, if you have vendors that are, you're required to have written formalized procurement policy, uh, at a minimum, follow the guidelines of uniform guidance for federally sourced awards. So what we see commonly is 
uh, we have a vendor that's now getting charged to a federal award currently. And this vendor has been with the organization as a history with a client. So they haven't had any proper procurement procedures documented in evidence. And, but under uniform guidance, that documentation needs to be in place. And this could be in the form of doing procurement procedures again for and non-competitive uh, compliance with procurement. And here you'll just see a few different methods that are that an organization can use. It could be micro purchases, small purchase, simplified acquisition threshold, sealed bids, request for proposals, or non-competitive, like I just mentioned. On the next slide, you'll see non-competitive procurement can only be awarded if one or more of the following circumstances apply. The acquisition of the property or services, the ag aggregate dollar value, which does not exceed the micro-purchase threshold. Just currently set at 10,000. 10,000, yes. And the item is, is available only from a single source. So that could be that vendor or consultant that the organization has had a longstanding relation or they have a specialty in this, the purpose of this federal award or the area. The public uh, emergency for the requirement will not permit a delay resulting from publicizing competitive solicitation. Uh, and there's a couple other things under non-competitive procurement. Next, as Trisha mentioned, we'll touch on quickly suspension and debarment. So this is another compliance requirement under federal awards, um, depending on the actual award received. Suspension and debarment compliance requirement says that it requires a non-federal entity that receives federal assistance to restrict awards, subawards, and contracts with certain parties that are debarred, suspended, or otherwise excluded from or ineligible for participation in federal assistance programs or activities. So this is a area where I see a lot of clients have a little bit of confusion. Best practice is to do this annually for all of our contractors, consultants, uh, international vendors, and so on and so forth. Uh, so this is definitely something that you're going to want to have documented in your policies and procedures, and it can be the evidence can be as easy as a PDF of the search results uh, that occurred prior to engaging with the vendor. And on this slide, you'll see the website where you can get this information from simply print out a PDF and store in the vendor file for that particular vendor. Yeah, and there are some vendors out there that will also do um, check for you. Uh, I, I can't recall off the top of my head what the names are, um, but there are some vendors out there that will continuously scan um, to make sure that your vendors are not suspended or debarred because, you know, one of the other big things is that you may engage with a vendor and then five days later, they get suspended or debarred for whatever reason, and you may not know it because you already performed your check, but that's also why, as Bill mentioned, we recommend that it at least be performed annually. Thank you, Bill, for going over those deficiencies. So we're gonna talk just really, really quickly. Uh, I know we're close down to time and I do wanna get to those proposed updates, but the data collection form um, and the single audit filing. So they have moved from the Federal Audit Clearinghouse's website and now under the GSA uh, for the current year. And so just as some backdrop, um, if you've been a part of the single audit process, 
you know, it, it's been a little frustrating for, for auditors, I would say, at least over the past year plus at this point in time, because the transition actually was supposed to occur in 2022. Um, so it was supposed to occur last October. There were some things that happened. Uh, and so there's been a delay in that transition. I think there were also coming up with some complications within the system as well. Um, and so with that, there was a little bit of a waiver that was allowed for a late filing submission when it comes to the data collection form. Uh, you'll also see if you happen to be in any area where there were some hurricanes from last year um, that you also have a six month extension. So if you are 1231 year end, you actually wouldn't have required to be, uh, your data collection form would not be required to be filed until March 31st of 2024 um, because you have a six month extension from that original nine month due date um, before it would be considered late. And so with that, we there has been some change finally. We're into the new system. It opened up, I believe, either late September, early October. I think it was actually a couple of days early than what they had um, anticipated and when it would be open. And so with that, again, we're looking at the same thing. If you do have uh, a filing that is required, uh, excuse me, a fiscal year end between January 1st of 2023 through September of 2023, then you um, are able to have that submission kind of submitted a little bit later, uh, as long as it's within the nine months after your fiscal year end, it will not be considered late. Uh, so that is a good thing because we have been not quite so successful with some of our clients. It's a little bit tricky of a situation or a little bit wonky of a, a system right now, I think. And so I know they're continuously working on it. We have access to people to ask questions, um, but we have been successful in at least submitting at the end of the day for several of our clients thus far on the new system. Okay, this is the part where I think all of you are here for, but there are some proposed changes that OMB has put out. Um, again, emphasizing the word that these are proposed, it may or may not happen. So I did wanna to touch on them, but these are the key proposed revisions that we felt um, were really important to kind of highlight for you all for, for this year. Uh, or excuse me, for this presentation today. And so number one, uh, adding some more flexibility to um, some costs. And one of the biggest things is just right now, the equipment purchase threshold uh, for which it's required to be in our fixed asset management system is going up from $5,000 to $10,000. So um, that definition is, is going to be hopefully increased. Uh, we would love to see that happen. The other big thing, is raising the de minimis indirect rate from 10 to 15%. And this is really good because if you are an organization that, again, doesn't have that negotiated rate and you are using the de minimis rate, you're actually losing out on some money that you could get because more often than not, than not your actual indirect rate is much, much higher than this current 10%. In fact, it's probably higher than the 15%. Most of my clients that have negotiated rates where it sits somewhere in the realm of about 17 to 23% right now, I would say is kind of my range that I typically see. Um, so again, you can use the de minimis rate, but I do encourage you to attempt to get a negotiated rate if you're in a space where you're going to continuously perf uh, get federal funding. The other big thing here, raising the single audit threshold from $750,000 to $1 million. Again, these are just proposed changes. I do want to emphasize that one more time, uh, even though you may have expenditures that are between that 750 and 1 million, but you're saying it's under 1 million, let's wait and see what happens. 
uh, revising some headings of the two CFR, again, the uniform guidance to replace grants and agreements with federal financial assistance, because as we previously went over on a prior slide at the very beginning of today's presentation, there's a lot more um, that can be termed a federal award besides just grants and agreements, right? So they wanted to make sure that that was clarifying. Um, also, including a requirement passed through entities to confirm that potential subrecipients are not suspended, debarred, or otherwise excluded from receiving funds. So right now, that is not required of them. You're not required to go and look and see if a subrecipient, a potential subrecipient, is suspended or debarred on the SAM.gov. This would now include that requirement uh, if the proposal goes through. And then again, uh, removing this prior written approval for 10 items, those 10 items, uh, were things like real property, equipment, direct costs, entertainment costs, exchange rates, memberships, participant support costs, selling and marketing costs, and taxes. Um, so you no longer have to go out to your oversight agency and get written approval before you can charge that to the federal award. Um, and so with that, I think that we are pretty much down on our time. Um, so we did want to leave some space for some questions, if there are any, and I think that there are a few. Yeah, Trisha, I think there's one from earlier on that mm -hmm. was. Yeah, so there's a couple questions here within the chat. How often should you do a CM check? Um, again, that's going to be part of your written policies and procedures, right? I really think uh, that's going to be something that is up to management discretion. However, again, we do at least recommend that you perform it once a year on an annual basis uh, just to make sure that there is um, no one that you're currently working with that is suspended to barter and eligible from participation within the federal government. Another question, what is the time frame for the proposed changes? When might these be decided and effective for? So currently comments are due, I believe, on December 4th uh, for these proposed changes. Uh, once we hear, I'm not sure when the actual date of decision may be, but they would be effective for the 2024 compliance supplement. Therefore, they would be effective for June 30, 2024 fiscal year and then going forward um, until 2025 comes out. So we are hopeful that's, uh, that is at least the anticipation. Trisha, can we address this? Uh, so if you're receiving funds, federal funds from another non-federal entity, and they selected you through a procurement process and it's mm -hmm. not a sub award. Do you need to re report on a SIFA? Um, again, that would be something that I would have to specifically see what the agreement is and how it is written. It could be a yes or a no, depending on if you're considered to be a contractor or a subrecipient. Uh, and there are clear definitions within the uniform guidance that will uh, outline when you are considered to be a subrecipient versus a contractor. Uh, and so with that, we are right at noon. So Kira, I'll hand it off to you to give the final remarks. With that, we would like to thank everyone for attending today's discussion. We encourage you to follow us on social media at GRF CPAs and visit our website for upcoming events and alerts. Thanks again and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.